Chapter forty one of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter forty one The Byzantine and Sassanid Empires. The Greek speaking eastern half of the Roman Empire showed much more political tenacity than the western half. It weathered the disasters of the fifth century AD, which saw a complete and final breaking up of the original Latin Roman power. Attila bullied the Emperor Theodosius II, and sacked and raided almost to the walls of Constantinople, but that city remained intact. The Nubians came down the Nile and looted Upper Egypt, but Lower Egypt and Alexandria were left still fairly prosperous. Most of Asia Minor was held against the Sassanid Persians. The 6th century, which was an age of complete darkness for the West, saw indeed a considerable revival of the greek power justinian the first five hundred twenty seven to five hundred sixty five was a ruler of very great ambition and energy and he was married to the empress theodora a woman of quite equal capacity who had begun life as an actress justinian reconquered north africa from the vandals and most of italy from the goths he even regained the south of spain he did not limit his energies to naval and military enterprises. He founded a university, built the great church of St. Sophia in Constantinople, and codified the Roman law. But in order to destroy a rival to his university foundation, he closed the schools of philosophy in Athens, which had been going on in unbroken continuity from the days of Plato, that is to say, for nearly a thousand years. From the 3rd century onwards, the Persian Empire had been the steadfast rival of the Byzantine. The two empires kept Asia Minor, Syria and Egypt, in a state of perpetual unrest and waste. In the 1st century AD, these lands were still at a high level of civilization, wealthy, and with an, an abundant population, but the continual coming and going of armies, massacres, looting and war taxation, wore them down steadily until only shattered and ruinous cities remained upon a countryside of scattered peasants in this melancholy process of impoverishment and disorder lower egypt fared perhaps less badly than the rest of the world alexandria like constantinople continued a dwindling trade between the east and the west science and political philosophy seemed dead now in both these warring and decaying empires the last philosophers of athens until their suppression preserved the texts of the great literature of the past with an infinite reverence and want of understanding but there remained no class of men in the world no free gentlemen with bold and independent habits of thought to carry on the tradition of frank statement and inquiry embodied in these writings the social and political chaos accounts largely for the disappearance of this class but there was also another reason why the human intelligence was sterile and feverish during this age in both persia and byzantium it was all age of intolerance both empires were religious empires in a new way in a way that greatly hampered the free activities of the human mind of course the oldest empires in the world were religious empires centering upon the worship of a god or of a god-king 
Alexander was treated as a divinity, and the Caesars were gods, insomuch, as they had altars and temples devoted to them, and the offering of incense was made a test of loyalty to the Roman state. But these altar religions were essentially religions of act and fact. They did not invade the mind. If a man offered his sacrifice and bowed to the god, he was left not only to think, but to say practically whatever he liked about the affair. But the new sort of religions that had come into the world, and particularly Christianity, turned inward. These new faiths demanded not simply conformity, but understanding belief. Naturally fierce controversy ensued upon the exact meaning of the things believed. These new religions were creed religions. The world was confronted with a new word, orthodoxy, and with a stern resolve to keep not only acts, but speech and private thought within the limits of a set teaching. For to hold a wrong opinion, much more to convey it to other people, was no longer regarded as an intellectual defect, but a moral fault that might condemn a soul to everlasting destruction. Both Ardashir I, who founded the Sassanid dynasty in the 3rd century A.D., and Constantine the Great, who reconstructed the Roman Empire in the 4th, turned to religious organizations for help, because in these organizations they saw a new means of using and controlling the wills of men. And already before the end of the 4th century, both empires were persecuting free talk and religious innovation. In Persia, Ardashir found the ancient Persian religion of Zoroaster, or Zarathustra, with its priests and temples and a sacred fire that burnt upon its altars, ready for his purpose as a state religion. Before the end of the third century, Zoroastrianism was persecuting Christianity, and in 277 A.D., Mani, the founder of a new faith, the Manichaeans, was crucified and his body flayed. Constantinople, on its side, was busy hunting out Christian heresies. Manichaean ideas infected Christianity and had to be fought with the fiercest methods. In return, ideas from Christianity affected the purity of the Zoroastrian doctrine. All ideas became suspect. Science, which demands before all things the free action of an untroubled mind, suffered a complete eclipse throughout this phase of intolerance. War, the bitterest theology, and the usual vices of mankind, constituted Byzantine life of those days. It was picturesque, it was romantic, it had little sweetness or light. When Byzantium and Persia were not fighting the barbarians from the north, they wasted Asia Minor and Syria in dreary and destructive hostilities. Even in close alliance, these two empires would have found it a hard task to turn back the barbarians and recover their prosperity. The Turks, or Tartars, first come into history as the allies first of one power and then on of another. In the 6th century, the two chief antagonists were Justinian and Cosrys I. In the opening of the 7th, the emperor Heraclius was pitted against Cosrys II, 580. At first and until after Heraclius had become emperor, 
610. Chosroes II carried all before him. He took Antioch, Damascus, and Jerusalem, and his armies reached Chalcedon, which is in Asia Minor, over against Constantinople. In 619 he conquered Egypt. Then Heraclius pressed a counter-attack home, and routed a Persian army at Nineveh, 627, although at that time there were still Persian troops at Chalcedon. In 628, Khosrys II was deposed and murdered by his son, Kavach, and an inconclusive peace was made between the two exhausted empires. Byzantium and Persia had fought their last war, but few peoples as yet dreamt of the storm that was even then gathering in the deserts to put an end forever to this aimless, chronic struggle. While Heraclius was restoring order in Syria, a message reached him. It had been brought in to the imperial outpost at Bostra, south of Damascus. It was in Arabic, an obscure Semitic desert language, and it was read to the emperor, if it reached him at all, by an interpreter. It was from someone who called himself Muhammad, the prophet of God. It called upon the emperor to acknowledge the one true God and to serve him. What the emperor said is not recorded. A similar message came to Kavadh at Tsetsiphon. He was annoyed, tore up the letter, and bade the messenger be gone. This Muhammad, it appeared, was a Bedouin leader whose headquarters were in the mean little desert town of Medina. He was preaching a new religion of faith in the one true God. Even so, O Lord, he said, Rend thou his kingdom from Kavad. End of chapter 41